From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. This is the book show, People of the Book. We've got a very full show. We've got five books that I want to get through in the first half an hour, and we're going to be joined in the studio uh, at half past 11 by a good friend of our show, uh, Tracy from Jonathan Ball Books. So it's a full, full show. Get your pens ready to write down the titles of the books that you want to read. And uh, from then onwards... You can sit, sit back. If you're caught in the traffic, just enjoy the traffic jam because you'll hear great programming here on People of the Book. The first book I'm going to talk about is by Dennis Lehane, and it's called Since We Fell. And Dennis Lehane actually is the author of many books. Some of them have actually been made into movies. The uh, one book, Gone Baby Gone, was made into a movie. Mystic River also, and Shutter Island. And here, Since We Fell, is his latest book. It's just come out right now. And before I finish talking about it, I'd like to actually read the first few paragraphs. Of the true... Um, why do some people commit terrible crimes and others not? Why are some people driven by greed, by jealousy and fear? And how do we recognize these people so we can protect, protect ourselves from them? Because at the end of the day, the guilty among us look just like the innocent. We share the same genes, the same basic environment. We were raised with the same values for the most part. And yet, deep down, each of us is a stranger to the other. Since We Fell, which as I said is Lee Haynes' latest novel, feels even more than his previous books like a balancing act between a character study and a thriller. One of which the genre, one of which the genre nature of this book hides its head for so long that the reader ultimately surrenders the idea that he or she is reading anything other than a literary novel about an attractive and successful young woman slowly surrendering to paranoia and madness. The first thing we learn about the main character, Rachel Childs, is that she grew up without a father. Raised by the kind of mother who drives a surprising amount, who drives a surprising amount of literature, larger than life, domineering, charismatic, matriarch as sun and moon, career-driven, but non-nurturing of her daughter. From the time of Rachel's birth, mother and daughter were bound together, and as a result, Rachel grew to define herself in reference to her mother, the way they were similar, the ways Rachel hoped. They were different, and yet at her core, how could she avoid adopting her mother's skewed worldview, her uneasy relationship to power, her distrust of other people, and, worse, her mother's less-than-flattering opinion of this new and unformed person called Rachel? The daughter was a girl the mother competed with, one she belittled at every turn in order to maintain dominance. It takes a lot for a child to grow up in the shadow of such a narcissistic parent, without surrendering to self-loathing and doubt. But it seems at first that Rachel has managed to find some peace and a place for herself. After college, she becomes a TV journalist, a talking head with a bright future and a handsome, handsome fiancé, himself rising through the ranks at the same network. But under it all is a gnawing question. Rachel keeps asking, who is my father and why did he leave? This is Rachel's personal mystery. 
concerned not with the nature of time and space, but with the strange decisions made by the fickle meat inside other people's heads. So, in her twenties, Rachel begins the quest that will come to define the next decade of her life, the search for a man whose name her mother never told her. The search has twists and turns, and at one point she finds the man all evidence suggests is her long-lost daddy, only to learn that they share no biological connection. All the while, Rachel somehow manages to live up to the expectations of the normal world, thriving at work and in life. But then an assignment to Haiti in the aftermath of a natural disaster leads Rachel to a downward spiral. Damaged people, you see, can be propped up and held together by the boundaries of a functional world. But when you drop them into chaos, the chaos inside them rattles free. We read Rachel's self-destruction. The fiancé who has since become her husband leaves her. She loses her job, then her career. Alcohol becomes her solace, and she retreats into unchecked anxiety. Her insecurities calcifying into agoraphobia. She becomes a waste of space. Her mother always told her she was. And then early in this very eventful book, she meets Brian. Oh, she re-meets Brian, because a decade earlier he floated through her life for ten minutes as a private investigator she hired in her endless search for her father. Now, when she re-meets him, Brian has left that life behind, returning to the family businesses which father started. He's handsome and successful, and he confesses a secret to Rachel. She is the one girl he shouldn't have allowed to get away. Slowly, with love and patience, Brian brings her out of her shell. He helps reintroduce her to the world. They get married. Her anxiety dulls, fades. Rachel, at long last, has found the peace and love she deserves. And for the first, and for and for a time, they are happy. But then suspicion, all those old, hard-wired patterns of mistrust, creep back in. There's a business trip abroad that Rachel comes to believe Brian never took. A sighting of him getting into a waiting car when he's supposed to be travelling overseas. Is he lying to her? Is Brian just another in a long list of manipulators and deceivers, another crazy mother, another abandoning father? This is the mystery. Should we believe the worst about people or the best? Can old patterns change? Can people surprise us for the better? The turn when it comes is both satisfying and a little bit disappointing. However, the high wire act Lee Hain has managed to craft a character thriller, a psychological nail-biter based on real emotion and relatable anxiety, has been the rarest kind of page-turner, one in which character, not plot, drives the book's addictiveness. This is Since We Fell by Dennis Lee Hain. Dennis Lee Hain, as I said earlier, is the author of a number of books, but... Uh, and some of them will be made into movies but uh, this one uh, has just come out right now it's, it's it's a real psychological thriller and as as i said he uses character to drive to drive the the plot i just want to read the beginning of the book because if you read if you if you if you have a taste like this there's no ways you can put this book down or or choose to ignore it the the prologue On a Tuesday in May, in her 37th year, Rachel shot her husband dead. 
he stumbled backward with an odd look of confirmation on his face, as if some part of him had already known she'd do it. He looked surprised too. She assumed she did as well. Her mother wouldn't have been surprised. Her mother, who never married, wrote a famous book on how to stay married. The chapters were named after stages. Elizabeth Childs, Ph.D., had identified in any relationship that began in a state of mutual attraction. The book was entitled The Staircase and became so successful that her mother was convinced into writing two sequels, Reclimbing the Staircase and The Steps of of the Staircase, a workbook, each of which sold more poorly than the last. That's the beginning of the book. With such a beginning, you actually want to know why she shot her husband, why he wasn't so surprised, and why her mother pops into her mind at this moment in her life. We'll be back with more straight after this ad break. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. We've just looked at uh, Dennis Lehane's new book, Since We Fell, published by Little Brown. It's available in the shops right now. Great psychological thriller, really getting into the mind of his main character, Rachel Charles. The second book we're going to look at today, it's published by Mantle. It's called Testimony, and it's by a very famous author, Scott Turow. Scott Turow, they call him the thinking man's uh, legal thriller writer. Uh, he's compared to... Um, He's compared to all the greats in the genre. His, his, his books, Presumed Innocent, The Burden of Proof and Innocent, very, very famous. Some of them made into movies. He writes for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vanity Fair, the New York and Atlantic. And this book, once again, a great, great legal thriller, but with a huge difference. He's moved his action out of Kindle County, where most of his books are. It's a, his, his fictional county in America close to Chicago where most of his books are set and here we're going across the Atlantic to Europe with a book centered on a massacre of gypsies, Roma people during the Bosnian War and the Bosnian War and its aftermath is an excellent period in which to set a legal thriller because more than 20 years after the end of that very messy conflict it is still unclear exactly who was responsible for doing what to whom the war remains one of the bloodiest who-done-its and why-done-its of the 21st century international relations. The breakup of Yugoslavia and the declaration of independence by the Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1992 sparked inter-ethnic carnage in which Bosnian Serbs, Croats and Muslims butchered one another and were murdered with a brutality and a complexity that horrified and baffled the outside world in equal measures. At least 100,000 people were killed by many systematic ethnic cleansing programs. The fallout and legal accounting from the war continues even today. Radovan Karadzic, the Bosnian Serb leader, was finally captured in Belgrade in 2008 and was brought before the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia at The Hague in the Netherlands. Last year, in 2016, Karadzic was sentenced to 40 years in prison for genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity. This is the background for Scott Turow's latest novel, Testimony. Swapping 
the American courtrooms of his most famous book, Presumed Innocent, and also The Burden of Proof, for now the courtrooms of the International Criminal Court in The Hague. And what we have is a fast-paced, well-researched novel. But it's, it's a very tangled novel. This is a crime novel that requires quite a lot of concentration and engagement with international politics and trying to untangle what happened to Yugoslavia. And in the book we have Bill Ten Boom, who had a successful career in America as an attorney and a criminal defender. As his name sounds, Bill Ten Boom, Dutch in origin, but he's all American in instinct. And he's having a major league midlife crisis. At the age of 54, he's left his house in Illinois, his wife, his family, and his job, concluding that despite all his success, he has never felt fully at home with myself. At the suggestion of an old friend, a senior intelligence officer, he accepts an offer to work for the RCC at The Hague and to prosecute an unsolved case left over from the Bosnian War. The disappearance of several hundred Roma as I said, also called gypsies, in the wake of the Bosnian conflict. The gypsies, or the Roma, were some of the least recognized victims of the Bosnian War, reviled and misunderstood by all sides, as they have been throughout their persecuted history. In 2004, Boom learns 400 Roma men, women and children were rounded up by masked gunmen in the middle of the night, trucked to a large cave, and then, according to a lone survivor, buried alive. Who killed them? Was it Serb paramilitaries? Was it Islamist jihadis? Was it the Bosnian mafia? Or was it possibly the work of United States forces carrying out a revenge attack after the gypsies tipped off the fugitive Serb leader to an impending raid in which several American servicemen were killed? Teasing out the complexities and the actors in the conflict requires considerable scene setting and lots of explanatory, almost lectures that Scott Tarot pulls into the narrative of the book. Once Tarot's taken us through the warring parties and then through the Dayton Accords that ended the fighting in 1995, then the NATO forces deployed to enforce the accords and America's refusal to participate in the RCC. We are off at a speed that becomes faster and more assured the deeper we get into the novel. There's a number of really p- brilliant scenes, one where um, Bolton Boom is almost killed and uh, he realizes his like, life off flashes past him in a moment Tarot successfully recreates the roiling uncertainty of the Bosnian conflict and its consequences the stew of racism military aggression and crime the willingness of ordinary people to visit spectacular cruelty on their neighbours in obedience to ethnic enmities centuries old central to his plot is Laza Kajavik the fugitive Bosnian Serb leader suspected of unleashing his men on the Roma on the gypsies. And if you have kept up with current events and you did follow the, the, the whole, the whole Bosnian war, when you read Scott Tarot's disclaimer that no character is a representation of anyone who has lived, you actually see beyond that and you can see that Kajovic is plainly modeled on 
the real Karadzik all the way from his elaborate hairstyle to his towering arrogance and his brutality. The scene shifts from the killing fields of Bosnia to the quiet certainties of the Netherlands and The Hague. And then we also have the gypsy sex pot, Esma Zarni, a Cambridge-educated barrister, aroma advocate, and she becomes the romantic lead in the, in the, in the novel. Scott Turow did a fortune of research for this book, but at the same time, it is not a intimidating read. It's fast-paced, it's very, very, very enjoyable, and it gives you an opportunity to dip back into very, very recent history and then look at the legal complexities. And I think with South Africa and so many other African nations looking to remove themselves from the International Criminal Court, the RCC. It's actually a very timely book to read, Scott Turow's testimony, and to see how important the RCC is in bringing crimes of humanity to justice. So that's Scott Turow's testimony. It's a great read, and it's it's an important read at the same time. Now, I don't think I'm going to get through all the books that I've planned to do today, so it's almost... uh, uh, It's almost... uh, uh, a difficult choice to make. Um, but I will, I will, I will, I'll choose the next one or two books during the next ad break. Uh, look, something exciting, something that will appeal to different readership, uh, from the books that I've just covered up to now. Straight after the ad break. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi, FM. The next book I'm going to talk about, well, the first two books we talked about were Scott Turow Testimony and then Dennis Lee Haynes' Since We Fell. Um, I'm going to do some popular science because I, I actually think that it's very important that if we're reading, it shouldn't just be purely for entertainment, but it should be for edutainment. And one of the reasons I love talking about popular science and popular maths books is because I think as an parent, if you read these books, you have so much more to share with your children at the supper table. You can talk about the most interesting facts and you can turn a family discussion into not, not so much a lesson because yeah, we, we don't want to, to make our, 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 supper, our, our, our supper tables feel like school, but you can introduce your children to so many exciting ideas. So this book is called Caesar's Last Breath. It's, it's uh, subtitled The Epic Story of the Air We Breathe, and it's by Sam Keen. For a popular science book, it's, it's very, very heavy on the popular and it's also heavy on the science. It's written in a very breezy way. Now, the whole idea of the the title, Caesar's Last Breath, so we're going to go through the maths, and we're going to see that there's a high likelihood that in the breath that you're currently taking, there might be a particle from the breath that Caesar expelled while he was saying et tu brute, when he was being assassinated. And from there we're going to look at the air that we breathe and the atmosphere around us. As humans, we are creatures of light and air. Life's a gas in every sense. We are oxygen, hydrogen, and nitrogen, packed together with the carbon that photosynthesizing life has plucked one molecule at a time from the atmosphere in the form of carbon dioxide. After death, our bodies break down to a handful of minerals. When Hamlet famously beseeched his too, too solid flesh to melt, thaw and resolve itself into a dew. He actually got it almost right. 
the Prince of Denmark would have been about 70% water, which is itself an atmospheric vapor, and he certainly could have been blown away. Sam Keane mentions somebody named Harry Truman, but then he very quickly adds in, not that Harry Truman, the former president of America, but uh, a man who was a volcanologist. This Harry Truman was blown away, literally, by Mount St. Helens. He was defiant, and he dismissed the warnings of other volcanologists, who ref- and he refused to leave the high slopes of America's most violent modern volcano before it erupted in May 1980. Keane then reconstructs his death, because, as a chemist, Keane knows that the temperature at which water, viscera, and bones could vaporize as a black cloud of intense heat, a hundred stories high and ten miles wide, came roaring down the mountain at 350 miles per hour and hit Truman. This is a quote. Truman's clothes would have flared and disappeared, and then Truman himself would have been sublimed in the scientific sense, transformed from solid to spirit almost instantly. And with the final hiss, he would have risen up into the air and became part of the atmosphere that we are all breathing in and out all the time, the atmosphere that regulates so much of life on this planet. As Keane says, there's a chance that your last breath contains just the tiniest whiff of the late Harry Truman, just as it quite possibly contains, in the the title says, the last Caesar's last breath, contains a remnant of the air exhaled by Julius Caesar as he famously cried out etu brute and then died. The atmosphere is vast, but so is the number of atoms and molecules inhaled with each breath. The number of lungfuls in the air and atoms in each lungful run to the billion trillions and more or less match. So each inhalation is also likely to incorporate the last wheeze of the dying tyrant and the breath exhaled by Mark Bolan of the band T-Rex as he sang Life's a Gas Our planet is for the moment an ideal home, solar powered air conditioned, fitted with hot and cold running water and some natural form of underfloor central heating if you think about the, the magma beneath the mantle of the earth, but it is the atmosphere that provides the currency with which life pays its way and this is the focus of Sam Keane's book, Caesar's Last Breath. Inevitably, some of it is quite familiar to people who know the history of science quite well, who could talk about oxygen without invoking Joseph Priestley or Lavoisier, nitrogen without mentioning Haber, or nitrous oxide without mentioning Davy. The numbers, too, can be quite num- numbing. We don't think in septillions, but that's the traffic in oxygen molecules consumed by a human in 24 hours in the course of powering muscle movement. The poisonous gas hydrogen sulfide, for instance, makes up a vanishingly small component of the air, but you gulp 60 million molecules every four seconds. You never think about the noble gases, but every four seconds you breathe in and breathe out 20 quadrillion molecules of helium and 100 quant- Quintillion of argon. This is the type of thing that you're going to see in the book. There's also the fun part of gas. We meet Joseph Pujol, other known, I can't pronounce the French, also known as Le Potomine, the Parisian performer of evocative flatulence. Uh, Albert Einstein also makes an 
uh, uh, a, an appearance. And then if you look carefully in the footnotes, you will see that Sean Keen has taken <coughs> verses from the Bible and he's tried to calculate the temperature of heaven and hell. Uh, from the book of Yeshua Isaiah, he quotes a verse that... Um, the temperature of heaven seems that the verse seems to say that the sun shines sevenfold in heaven as the light of seven days. And if you try to turn that into some mathematical formula, you'll get the the heat of 49 suns would make a temperature. It's, the book's all in Fahrenheit, so that'd be a, th- a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> and therefore, that heaven could be a lot hotter than hell. Uh, just two. You know, if we like our puns, two ways to finish off this this review. It's a hell of a read, and it's also a guess. So that is Sean Keen, Caesar's Last Breath, Popular Science, very, very breezily written, looking at the epic story of the air that we breathe, what makes up the atmosphere. And those are our three books for today. Scott Turow's Testimony, Since We Fell uh, by Dennis Lehane, and then... Caesar's Last Breath by Sam Keen, the epic story of the air that we breathe. A lot of fun. It will keep you regaled with all the science that really should be, we should know because this is the air that we are breathing. And now um, we're going to welcome our guest, Tracy, into the studio. Tracy's from Jonathan Ball. She she has some of the best lists in the industry that she reps. And, um Jonathan Ball actually has eight of the 13 long-listed Booker prize, uh, Booker nominees uh, that they sell. So, you know, when it comes to reading, Trace is going to regale us with the most exciting and the most uh, interesting books that we could possibly lay our hands on. Thank you, and thank you for having me again. I'm actually just going to jump straight in because I have a lot to get through, as usual. Um, first, though, because you can never get too much of a good thing, I did just want to mention that I had been last night to the launch of Charles van Onselen's new book, The Cowboy Capitalist, and it was just the most fantastic launch sitting. It was Charles van Onselen chatting to Prof Veal from UJ, and two more erudite, well-spoken, well-educated men there could not have been. And Charles has an incredibly wicked sense of humor, as well as having an incredible knowledge of South African world history. Um, and I just wanted to mention that next week, Tuesday, the 29th at 6 for 6.30, there is another launch at Love Books. And if you have... Time and hopefully it will be warmer next week. Uh, if you have time next Tuesday evening, do yourselves a favor and go to the launch of The Cowboy Capitalist. It was a fascinating discussion. Um, and the book is basically a retelling of the Jamison Raid and looking at the American involvement in the RAND um, in the early gold rush days. And what I thought was hugely interesting in Charles's introduction was the reason that he said he went back to look at the Jamison Raid is that I can't remember which historian it was. It might have been Eric Hobsbawm, who he was quoting, but saying that really you should be rewriting history every generation because obviously the history doesn't change, but the politics and the perspectives change. So you need to re-examine what you think you know, and that is what Charles does in this book, and great fun. 
great fun at the launch. So do, if you can, go out next Tuesday to Love Books to the launch of The Cowboy Capitalist. And is the book available in shops at the it moment? It is available in shops. It's in a beautiful hardcover edition. So, yes, we don't often publish hardcovers. We normally go to straight to trade paperback. So, yeah, do and look Charles, out for it. Charles is one of our greatest living historians about Johannesburg. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the world's greatest historians and researchers at the moment, not only within mm. South Africa, and a very engaging speaker. And then the next one that I want to speak about that is releasing next week, it should be in stores before the 1st of September, hopefully, fingers crossed, is the new Richard Stain, also nonfiction, also locally published. Richard Stain, if you remember, wrote... A book last year, a biography of Jan Smuts called Jan Smuts Unafraid of Greatness, which must be one of my favorite historical biographies ever. Incredibly readable. You, you know, you could quite happily take it into your book club meetings. It was a page turner and it was a biography of Jan Smuts. Now his new book that is releasing next week is called Smuts and Churchill, The Friendship. And it is about this friendship, this relationship between these hugely different men. Uh, you know, you have Churchill, who was born into the aristocracy in England, and you have Smuts, who grew up in small-town South Africa, and he went to school, I think, when in Standard 4, I think was the first time he actually started with a formal education. But over time, you know, they met as enemies first in the Boer War and then became friends World War I, World War II. They developed this incredible simpatico and a wonderful relationship. And because both were great correspondents, there is an incredible record of this relationship that Richard Stain now in his book tells so beautifully and so compellingly. So do look out for Smuts and Churchill, the friendship. Then I did, now we're jumping to some fiction um, and some of our book along listed titles. I'm just actually going to start with the one that I'm reading at the moment. I am about halfway through. And for now, when I first read the blurb, I thought, oh, this sounds interesting, but possibly, you know, a bit conceptual and often a booker nominated book is quite Inaccessible. Intimidating. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you need some sort of time and you need to take deep breaths and prepare yourselves for it. Um, but when the book was listed, uh, or long listed, I thought, oh, I better pick it up. So it is Home Fire by Camila Shamsi. And it is a contemporary retelling of Antigone which makes it sound like one of those crazy conceptual novels that are written all, you know, with no punctuation or all in one sentence. It, it makes it sound even more inaccessible. But I have been blown away by what I'm reading. It's set in or between contemporary London and the States, and it is the story of one family, a woman who has after her, her father was a jihadi terrorist. And after he was executed, she was left to raise her siblings. And she has an exceptionally beautiful younger sister and a twin brother called Parvais. And she, after looking after the, the, 
siblings for three years gets an opportunity. They're based in London. She gets an opportunity to go and study in the States. And for the first time, she's now in a position to actually go and do something for herself. And obviously, I, you know, being a Muslim woman, there are lots of problems with her getting into the States and getting through. I, the description of her getting through the airport was chilling. Um, but off she goes and she's going to pursue the life of her dreams, leaving the now, I think they're 19 or 20 at the time that the book place takes place, twin siblings in the UK. So she has the beautiful sister and her, his, her twin, Parvayez, who himself has now become radicalized and has gone off to Syria and has joined IS. It is, such a page turner and so completely accessible and it does it sounds intimidating and it just it is not so please do pick up home fire by Camilla Shamsi and it's had wonderful reviews Peter Carey says of it it left me awestruck on the edge of my chair filled with admiration for her courage and ambition it's a really great read and on the surface a straight thriller and a page turner. But beneath the surface, we're going into ancient Greek mythologies. Absolutely. And absolutely. And how we just repeat. And hopefully this stories. will be Camilla Shamsi's breakout novel in South Africa. Let's hope so. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Because, you know, she's had incredible reviews for years. Salman Rushdie gets positively poetic and rapturous when describing her work. And he doesn't strike me generally as a sort of rapturous man. And then the next one that I just wanted to mention, I haven't actually received any advanced sales copies of it, so I haven't read it, so I'm literally just going to mention it, is the new Nicole Krauss that is releasing in September. It's called Forest Dark. We're hoping it's going to be a really great book for us. Nicole is Jonathan Safran Fur's ex-wife. They were literary darlings on the New York scene, and they have now split up. This is her first novel Post their relationship collapsing. And as a Jewish authoress, she's, 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 she describes the Jewish experience in America. So it's very interesting from that perspective to, you know, to discuss this book on the show. So I think in a few weeks time, you have your copy. Hopefully I'll get one as well. Yes, absolutely. And then, and then we, we can, can have a discussion about the new Nicole Krauss. Krauss. Certainly the reviews coming from the UK are very complimentary so far. Then the next one that I wanted to talk about is, sure, it's it's called The City Always Wins by Omar Robert Hamilton. And it is a debut novel, one of the most haunting books you will ever read. It's not, it's not an easy read, but it will live with you. It is the story of a group of youngsters in Egypt in 2011 during the revolution in which Mubarak is overthrown within a period of 13 days after a 20-year reign um, and overthrown largely, you know, sort of on TV tweets. And it is a group, the story is about a group of young people who are reporting on the revolution. And, you know, they start off with this incredible optimism and stars in their eyes in terms of creating a new world that optimism of youth in the face of injustice the idea that you can change things that the Arab Spring is real and of course as you're reading it as the reader 
I, it does run up to 2013, so you you start to see the revolution having failed. But you as the reader, it's just heartbreaking because you know there is just no happy ending. And in the book itself, yes, there there aren't happy endings, but it is, oh, it's just, it's such an important book and so incredibly well written. I just quickly here, just in terms of where we are in South Africa and our politics, one of the little paragraphs that I'd highlighted, because this was one of the books for me that I really did highlight, and you have to take a few moments after reading a paragraph, a page, to absorb a lot of what has been said, because it is that disturbing. Um, but here they are, this group that are broadcasting about the revolution in real time, and initially this is what they say. They can't keep up with us. An army of Samsungs, Twitters, HTCs, emails, Facebook events, private groups, iPhones, phone calls, text messages, all adjusting one another's movements millions of times each second. An army of infinite mobility, impossible to outmaneuver. And, of course, they are outmaneuvered. And... We've done it to ourselves, this cycle of horror. Each scene has to be more shocking than the last. Then they care for 15 minutes until the next horror horrifies them. And how many horrors until people have to just switch off? How many waves of outrage must we spark to reignite the revolution? How many last breaths will we auction off to the breathless Internet? If a revolution's fuel is death, then what will be its end? It's... It's really an extraordinary book. So that is The City Always Wins by Omar Robert Hamilton, and they're talking about it as being, despite a debut, the definitive novel of the Arab Spring. And in many ways it reads like journalism. It's real real to life. It's true to life. Indeed. We'll be back with more books from Jonathan Ball straight after this air break. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM. And this is People of the Book. Uh, Stephen Kravitz in the studio and we're joined by Tracy Schwarzer and we're discussing, it's just, this is, this is, this is, Good literature that we're discussing from the, from the Jonathan Ball's um, agencies. Uh, Camilla Shamsi, um, then we've been discussing also The City Always Wins, uh, Nicole Krauss, The Dark Forest, uh, Cowboy Capitalist, that's a local history by um, Charles Van Anselen, and also Smuts and Churchill. So the, the, the there's a lot so far, but I can see there's more to come. <laughs> and, and, and not much in terms of focus. I'm jumping all over the show. Oh, that's fantastic. That's um, what we love about books. Indeed, that you can. Um, I wanted to mention, if you hadn't yet read or seen or heard about Minion Lee's Pachinko, I know, Stephen, you were a huge fan yeah. of it. Um, in September, it's coming out in paperback. So if you were waiting for a smaller, cheaper edition to take on an aeroplane on a holiday... Pachinko will be coming in in paperback. It is epic family history between Korea and Japan, much in the same sort of line as a Wild Swans, even a Memoirs of a Geisha, perhaps, but wonderful historical epic saga fiction, beautifully written, and a book that will stay with you. So that is coming in paperback in September. 
And then some non-fiction that I wanted to just sort of pass by. Um, a book from Faber published in their Guardian imprint called Into the Grey Zone by Adrian Owen. And for anybody who had read When Breath Becomes Air, it is more fascinating neuroscience, perhaps with less of the poignancy of When Breath Becomes Air, for obvious reasons. Adrian Owen is a neuroscientist who started working on people or started working with people in vegetative states, basically. Um, and he's always been fascinated by liminal states in the brain. And where are these people who are not in comas when you're in a vegetative state? Are you conscious? was his question, and how do you prove that scientifically? So he started working on the question in 2016, when at the time they were using PET scanners for brain imaging. And obviously PET scanning was PET scanning um, with the radiation involved was quite dangerous, so they couldn't do an awful lot. But how do you prove consciousness scientifically? So it's a, you know, it's a philosophical question, but based... In Biblical science, reality. how do how do you how do you make consciousness look? How, how do you put it on a piece of paper? How do you quantify it? And the experiment that they ultimately came up with to give the best results, there are two questions that they ask people that have a very isolated response on the imaging software within the brain. And the two questions that they ask these people in vegetative states to either respond yes or no to are imagine yourself walking around your childhood home. And if you do that, a particular part of your brain lights up and it lights up only in that part of your brain. The other one is imagine yourself playing a game of tennis. And what... Adrian and his team have done is they've got people in the scanning machines, as I said, first the PET scanners and now the MRI scanners, and ask them questions and to imagine playing tennis if the answer is no or imagine walking around the childhood home if the answer is yes. And they've been able to establish that in these people in vegetative states, the figure was somewhere around 40% were able to respond to these questions. So we're essentially conscious. And the book is filled with case studies. It's very accessibly written because they're the case studies. And even when he's writing about the science, it's, it's readily understandable. And just unbelievable stories. I mean, there's one of a, young man who had had a motorbike accident when he was 18. He's been in a vegetative state now for 12 years. And the medical fraternity have basically said to his mother, look, he's, he is a vegetable. He has no ability to respond to you. And, of course, his mother has clung to the idea that he's still in there somewhere, and she thinks she sometimes does see responses from him. Um and what Adrian's experiments were able to prove was that he was still inside there. And the first question that they asked him, 
and for Adrian had had to clear it with the mother because obviously to have, well, the first question is, do you want to die? Because if you are living in your body, that is a prison and you cannot communicate with anybody, do you, is there still value in your life? And his answer, incidentally, was that no, he didn't want to die and no, he wasn't in pain. But one of the other ladies that he engages with, who eventually comes out of her vegetative state, her agony was being thirsty for the three years that she was in the vegetative state and she just genuinely couldn't communicate. So it's, Adrian does want to use the science to help people um, as well as to say, okay, what is consciousness? It's an incredible read and yeah, just a, it's called Into the Grey Zone by Adrian Owen, published by Faber and Guardian. Indeed. Sure. And then which didn't make the Booker long list, but which was One World Submission. One World won the Booker for the, for the last, last two, two years. years. It was with the sellout and history of seven killings. So this was their submission for this year. And I was hopeful it would get onto the long list, but it hasn't made it. It's a book called Grace by Paul Lynch. And it is set during the Irish potato famine. So if you enjoyed Sebastian Barry's Days Without End, which is also on the Booker Long List and has won, I think, probably close to all the awards in the last 12-month cycle. But if you enjoyed Days Without End, give Grace a try. And Sebastian Barry actually gives the shout on the cover of the book saying Lynch makes literary synapses spark and burn. What's the story about? So it's a young woman called Grace who during the potato famine is sort of cut loose by her mother who realizes that Grace is no longer safe anymore for a couple of reasons. So her mother cuts out the first chapter the mother cuts Grace's hair in the middle of the night and it's during the flooding time of the Great Famine and the rain is just pouring and there's lightning and thunder and the mother takes Grace outside with a blunt butcher's knife and cuts her hair off with a blunt butcher's knife. It's incredibly sort of contemporary writing even though it's set in 1830s Ireland and she says to Grace, you are the strong one now and Grace is kicked out of the family home to go and live her life as a boy to try and survive these incredibly difficult times. And her brother, Collie, who's 12, who's a sort of streetwise 12-year-old, you know, sort of thinks he's wise beyond his years, um, but is essentially still a 12-year-old boy. The two of them set off to start a new life and to try to regain life dignity for themselves, for their family. It is unbelievable writing more than anything else. So that is Paul Lynch's Grace. Do look out for it. It's coming in September. So how one world, a small little press, manages to get such great titles, it's mind-boggling. Yes. We've got an ad break, and we'll have maybe one or two more books after the break. <laughs> Frequency like no other. 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book, and I'm spellbound. <laughs> There's no other word. Absolutely enthralled. All these titles that Tracy's talking about. 
Uh, I'll just uh, I'll just can't imagine what you're going to pull out of your your black hat next. <laughs> well, out of my hat next is another book published by One World. It's coming in a hardback, but it's a reasonably priced hardback. I think it was about. 380 rand thereabouts and it's history written by Miranda Kaufman and it's called The Black Tudors and I'm well I'm obsessed with the Tudors and I think you know I mean I love Hilary Mantel and I loved Antonia Fraser's Six Wives of King Henry VIII back in the day and every time I see a new Tudors book I think you know what I'm actually at Tudor Overload, but then I pick one up and I think, oh goodness, I'm home. And then there's but always now, the Philippa Gregory as well. Exactly. I think her last one, her, oh. ne- her next book's called The Last Tudor. Oh, absolutely. So now The Black Tudors is non-fiction and it is about black Africans living in Tudor, England. And oh, I just love histories where you find these little sort of corners that you would never have imagined and the story behind the book, or the story behind the black Africans in Tudor, England, is Henry VII declaring that England's air was too pu- pure for slaves to breathe. So even when Portuguese and Spanish slaving ships were arriving in the UK with slaves on board, as soon as a slave got onto English soil, they were considered free men because there was no slavery in the UK, in the British Isles. And lots of the slaves had heard about this, so were keen to get to the UK. And it is written in sort of eight mini-biographies of some of the better-known black Tudors. And uh, there's some in Southwark who were prized for their needle-making skills, skills that they didn't have at the time in the UK. So there were lots of needle-makers in Southwark. And the story that I'm currently busy with are the selvage divers. And King Henry VIII, a year after the Mary Rose had sunk, contracted a group of West African selvage divers to come and dive on the Mary Rose to pull up the the cannons, because obviously nobody in Europe was particularly adept at swimming at the time. It was just miserable and cold, and I'm sure as it still is now. But it's just an incredible look into a part of history that I had never been aware of. So it was something new from the Tudors. Um, it's, It's a really great read, and as I say, because it's divided into eight mini-biographies, it's also a wonderful book to dip into. So you could have your novel on one side and dip into Miranda Kaufman's Black Tudors on the other. And we've got time for a shout-out on one more Yes, it is a genuinely a shout-out because next week, most excitingly, Paul Beattie, Booker Prize winner for The Sellout, is going to be in Johannesburg. Um, he's having two events next week. On Wednesday, he's going to be at Love Books in conversation with Bongani Madondo. Again, that's 6 for 6.30. You can check out Love Books' Facebook page. And then on Thursday, he will be in conversation with Victor Tlamini at Exclusive Books Hyde Park. He is an absolute riot. If you haven't read the sellout yet, try to read it before he arrives. Otherwise, go to one of the events. He is he is a character with great literary skill. And he's the, book, he's the winner of last year's Booker Prize. Absolutely. One of the greatest living satirists. 
And we've run out of books and we've run out of time. So we actually haven't run out of books. We've just run out of time. <laughs> we'll be, I'll be back in the studio next week and we'll have uh, Tracy in sometime in the next month because uh, her lists are just endless. And until then, good Shabbos and keep reading.